as you can already start to see, there are so many things that echo exactly what happened to Christ when he came to earth and when he um, sacrificed himself for us. Some of the ones that just pop out to me was when he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep of his shares is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In the same way we see him when he's standing before his accusers, he never said anything. And as he's pierced for our transgressions, just this mere image uh, from Isaiah all the way to 700 years later when Christ actually appeared and what came to be. And one of the first questions that came into my mind is why did God choose to reveal his son through prophecy? What was Jesus thinking? What was going on? And so I'd just like to take maybe two minutes to start and think about that. What is the importance of prophecy and why is it maybe used here? So talk amongst yourselves. Two minutes. <laughs> the best part <laughs> about that, some, probably some really beautiful ideas coming out. Um, as I was praying about this and as I was getting ready, one of the verses that I found, or the chapters I found, was in 1 Corinthians 14. And the way that it's structured, it says that prophecy is used to build each other up. It's often used in a way of encouragement to one another. It's a way that we're pouring into each other's lives. It's also used as a way to bring faith to unbelievers. It says in the end of the chapter that if somebody walks into your congregation and sees you prophesying and sees these things coming to pass, that they will know that you are worshiping the one true God. And I believe that that is one of the ways that Isaiah is used. And another way I think it looks is through evidence that it's painting a map, or it's a road map, a set of dots to connect for us, a set of mysteries, if you will, for us to come together. Isaiah was written in the 8th century BC, which is, as I stated, almost 700 years before Christ. 
that to me already is mind-boggling because it's amazing to know that somebody so many years ago could get these pictures from God, could get these words from God, and they were all used to be pointing us towards Christ, all used as this roadmap. There was a book written by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he talked about the idea if one person was to fulfill only eight prophecies, and there are hundreds about Jesus that he fulfilled, but if it was only going to be eight prophecies, that it would, now this is a mathsy term, 10 to the 17th power is the likelihood, but I have a little example. So if you go to the next slide, if you take the state of Texas, which I gave you a little sneak peek of how big it is in comparison to the UK, it's quite large. And now, if you took the state of Texas and you completely filled it with chocolate digestives, uh, probably about a foot deep or about to your knees, and then you reached down and you took one and you licked all the chocolate off and then you tossed it and you went on a little jaunt, maybe a few hours, and then you randomly bent down and picked one up, the likelihood that that is the one that had the chocolate licked off of is the likelihood that somebody could randomly just fill all of these prophecies. And that was shocking to me because <laughs> that's a lot of digestives, as one might imagine. Um, the things that Jesus had to fulfill only were shocking because it demands where he was born, who he was born by, the lineage that came into it, what cities, and also how people responded to him. You'll be despised and rejected by men. How do you, well, some people might be good at that, but I don't know how you control an entire people group. I also see it as um, a clue that Jesus gave us, or gave to his people, which we are, that almost like in a spy film, you'll know the person that you're supposed to meet because he'll be wearing the trench coat. He'll be about six feet high. And when you ask him what time it is, he'll respond with, the rain in Spain falls mainly in the plain. And it's just these things that no one else is going to happen upon, but it's this complete map towards Jesus and towards Christ. But the question is, if this evidence is pointing to Christ, if these are the scriptures that were already written and given to the people since they're from the Old Testament, why didn't the people believe him when he came? Why were there still these doubts about who he was? Why were the leaders of the law, those that knew the scriptures inside and outside, still not convinced that he was the Messiah? And I think that one of the reasons is, as Paul pointed out on Palm Sunday, that people were expecting a king. They were expecting a conqueror. Someone was going to come in and save the day. It was going to be this huge hero, the larger-than-life hero, as the song goes. And that wasn't what he did. He came as a servant. He came as this suffering servant, and he laid down his life for us. And I think that it was so shocking that someone would do that, that you wouldn't just come in with these banners, you wouldn't come in with the cavalry, you wouldn't come in with all of the money and all the gold and all of your dragons, but that you would just come in as this servant. And there is this story written by Soren Kierkegaard called The King and the Maiden. And I would like to read that right now because I believe that it paints a beautiful illustration of what could have been going on in God's mind. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. 
The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet, this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist him. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course. But would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know for sure if he if he rode to the forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that he would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend to her. Clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him. This was not a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love and to win hers. I believe that this is the heart of God for us. I believe that this is the reason why he didn't come to overwhelm us, but because the Lord wanted our hearts. That most importantly, he wanted our love. That he didn't want just loyal subjects and someone to follow him, someone to follow these lists of rules, but that he wanted the equal, he wanted the bride. In Hosea 2.16, it talks about what the desires of the heart of God. And it says, in that day, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me your master. That is still the heart cry of God. I think even today, as we know God and as we approach him, sometimes we still get caught up in the servant relationship with God. That when I just prove it a little bit more, when I just work a little bit harder, when I know all of the Bible, once I've read it three times, then things will be good with me and God. When I serve more, when I give more, then I'll be worthy of this love. Somehow I'll earn it. Somehow I'll deserve it. But that was never what he wanted from us. One of the best examples I can think of is a father's love for his child, which um, these are my nieces and nephews who I absolutely adore. Um, they are fantastic in every single situation in life. And I know that their parents love them far more than I ever could. And I know that Jesus loves us like this too. And so I want you to imagine these kids, your own kids, the children in your life, whenever they do something wonderful or sweet and you just want to reach down and you want to hug them, you want to embrace them and tell them how proud you are of them. And what if their response was, no, I, I, I can't accept your hugs yet. Don't you remember yesterday when I did that horrible thing? I'm still sorry about that. I can't, I can't accept your hugs yet 
because I don't deserve them. And not only is that heartbreaking for the child to not know how much love the father wants to give, but it's also the heartbreak of the father who wants to give this love to his children. This is why Christ came. He wanted to woo his beloved back to him. He wanted to save her from this slavery. He wanted to save his children. He wanted to love them. There's this verse in Song of Psalms that says, with one look of her eye, I am ravished. And it's for that purpose of that maiden, for that purpose of that bride, for that purpose of you, that he laid down his life and endured all of this suffering. And that prophecy is a link to this path that he chose. And again and again throughout the Old Testament, Jesus reveals his plan to save us. He sets things in motion within his birth to fulfill each prophecy for this purpose, coming to this moment. There are two quotes um, that came to mind when I was thinking about this. And the first one is from Memoirs of a Geisha. Um, within the story, she's been sold into slavery and she has to overcome all of these challenges and training and she's beaten and she goes through wars and there's just a lot of obstacles that have come for her but she keeps pushing through because she wants to be united with the chairman who is her one love. And at the end of the film, when they finally are brought together, sorry, spoiler alert, um, she responds to him and all she says is, can't you see? Every step I have taken has been to bring myself closer to you. Every step I have taken has been to bring myself closer to you. And I think that that is also what God is saying. That every step I have taken, everything I've written in the Old Testament, every prophecy I've fulfilled, every path that I took, everything that I've laid out was to bring myself closer to you. This is something that we can see in the big scale and maybe even in our own histories, that there are moments that God has been taking steps to us. I know in my own life there have been situations that have been scary, overwhelming, um, very distressing, and it's hard to see where he is. It's almost those furnace moments where you just have to step into the fire and hope that God's going to be there. And even in those moments, there's times that he has been taking these steps to bring himself closer. The next quote comes from the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son asks for his inheritance, goes and destroys all his money, realizes that he's lost everything and he wants to come home. And the thing about this is that a father would never approach his son, also someone who's been so insulting to his family, who's basically said, I want you to be dead so that I can have my money. You would never expect a father to respond in love to this. And yet it says, and while he was a still way, long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. What I also love about this is it says that while he was still a long way off, which means that the father was looking out his window, he was scanning the horizon, he had to see the moment that there was the faintest figure that could possibly be his son, and he was running at him. And I think that that is so beautiful, and this was also to describe the way that the Lord runs after us, takes steps towards us. This love was made known to us throughout these prophecies, and 
This next verse is 1 John 4.19, where it says, we love because he first loved us. And I think that that is really what it's all about, that these prophecies that we've heard, where we've seen Jesus revealed in the Old Testament, where we've seen him come to be, was all him loving us first, taking those steps towards us, coming to be with us. And so maybe there are different ways to respond to this king, to this servant, to this lover, father. Maybe there's some who never knew that this love existed, never knew what it was to be loved like this, to never know that it was available. Maybe you can see where Jesus has been taking steps into your life throughout your history, where there have been dark moments and maybe you thought he wasn't there and it's time to evaluate where he could have been or what steps he could have been taken in that time. And maybe it's time to just realize that God wants more than a servant relationship with you, that he wants to be your father, that he wants a bride, that he wants to be that husband. There are many different ways to look at this king who has become a servant that chose to suffer, that chose to lay out a map, to not make it obvious, to come in secret, to come as a spy, just so that he could reveal his heart of love for each of us, so that we could choose to love him back or to not, but he gave us that choice, that he wanted to pour that out upon us.